Trump care would be a nightmare for the American people, causing tens of millions to lose coverage and millions more seeing the costs of their health care going up. We're saying the government's not going to force people to buy something they don't want to buy. I've, I've talked to the president, I think, three times on Obamacare, and I hear from him that he's willing to negotiate. You know what I hear from Paul Ryan? It's a binary choice, young man. They were way off. They were off by 13 million people. It's time to make America great again. Join the movement. Caruso, the Neil A. Caruso Show Podcast. Time to dream big. Informative, insightful, and valiant leadership. Telling it the way it is to make a difference. All right, Tuesday, March 14, 2017. Pie day, actually. Not the pie you bake in the oven, but uh, pie is in 3.14. Uh, for those that are into mathematics, but I digress. Uh, welcome to the Neil Akers Show podcast on this Tuesday. Um, a lot going on, as always, in Washington, and um, well, we're going to start on healthcare because that's really the number one topic um, until we probably get to tomorrow, Thursday, with the new travel suspension going into place. But you know, on the healthcare front, uh, the Republicans are battling themselves right now. They continue to. Um, not only battle themselves, but they're battling with House Speaker Paul Ryan. Um, I actually saw an interview with him a little while ago. You know, he seems pretty unflappable, but, you know, when you have a plan that I've discussed not being too happy with this uh, non-consensus Republican plan, you open the door to Democratic criticism, and you heard in the intro Schumer um, hitting on it, uh, Trump care, whatever he said, uh, Schumer cracks me up because he just, he rhymes everything and, well, you know, whether you like him, if you like him, I guess you like the rhyming, but, uh, if you don't, that can get on your nerves, I guess. Um, but, you know, you see a lot of disarray right now among Republicans. Now, Paul Ryan says it's a good thing that they're, that they're having such an open debate and discussion. Now, I see a good debate going on. I don't know that this should have been played out the way it's being played out in public. Because you're having a situation where everyone thinks, everyone has this appearance and perception is reality for some, um, that they see Republicans in disarray and that they haven't done anything for seven years. And frankly, I don't know if they have. Because I've said this before and I'll say it again. When you had seven years to put a repeal plan in place for Obamacare and they say that they started working on it last year, but... You have the Freedom Caucus led by Jim Jordan, and you have other Republicans like Senator Rand Paul who are saying this is not what we said when we're going to repeal Obamacare. We weren't going to uh, – there were a few representatives who said we said we're going to repeal Obamacare. We're not going to repeal it and then leave parts of it in there like uh, mandate or preexisting conditions or taxes or subsidies. Now, Democrats want more taxes. It amazes me. I mean, question that I have for you, and, you know, you could always tweet at me with your opinion or whatever, in a civil way, hopefully. Um, question I have for you is, do you actually want to pay more taxes? Like, do you want 
more money taking out of your checking account? Just a basic question because, you know, I see Democrats on uh, cable news today and other outlets, and they're saying, well, you know, I like the subsidies, and we need to add more subsidies. Oh, great. So we're going to tax people more for a system that doesn't work. You have insurance companies leaving. Uh, you had 31 states with double-digit rises in premiums, 116% in Arizona, one in every three counties, and there are some states that only have one insurance on the market, and they want to tax us more to fund a mess of a system. And frankly, I don't know whether the federal government's role is to be in healthcare. And that's another, you know, just a basic question here that I was thinking about. You know, we get into the, the policy on here. Not so much the process. I like to really get into the policy, but we do discuss the process and the political machinations that are going on in the nation's capital. But let me ask you just a basic question about health care. Is it the federal government's responsibility to provide health care for all Americans? Now, I know this could be an ideological question, but ask yourself, put politics, your personal views aside, whether you are liberal or conservative— do you think that every person, whether you're high income, low income, middle class, should just be given health insurance? Does that make sense? Um, to me, it doesn't make much sense because a lot of people didn't want to be on insurance. There are a lot of, you know, Obamacare, when it was put forth, the Affordable Health Care Act, it was supposed to be funded by young people that they, they assumed that young people would go on the market and that they would be paying into the system that would pay for the elderly Americans who are receiving benefits. That It just didn't work out that way because young people actually rather pay the fine because it's cheaper than paying for premiums. They don't see the doctor anyway, a lot of young people. A lot of people just don't see the doctor when they're in their 20s. And they don't have to go for screenings and tests, etc. So they would rather pay the fine than actually have the insurance. So a basic question here is, is it really the government's role to provide insurance, especially if there are people that don't want it? And that's where the Republicans are right now is that they're saying, and Paul Ryan said this, and, and other Republicans are saying, listen, it is not our goal. You know, we, we talked about the CBO report yesterday, Congressional Budget Office, saying that 24 million Americans would be uninsured. Well, all right, Obamacare left, well, gave insurance, I guess, really terrible insurance, but 20 million Americans were given some sort of care that didn't have it before. But a lot of people didn't want the insurance. They didn't want to be mandated to have the insurance, hence why you had young people paying a lot of fines. Just because they were maybe eligible then or they were given insurance doesn't mean it was quality insurance. I think there are a lot of Americans, most Americans— they would rather have the choice of choosing insurance rather than a socialism system of healthcare, which, again, we've discussed on here, does not work with 317 million people in this country. It doesn't work in Canada either because you have long wait times, and that's what Obamacare has created. And so is it really the government's responsibility to provide health insurance? Is it their responsibility to tell us how we should live our lives? And a lot of people want a hand. They don't want hands in their. They don't want Big Brother looking over them, and hands in our finances and taking money away from us. We work hard for our money. It amazes me though 
that there are, I mean, the the liberal ideology of taxing more, I mean, do they really want to pay more taxes? Because I see a lot of them getting tax breaks that middle class folks don't get. And this is where they lost middle class Americans on simple questions like taxes and health care. And they voted for President Trump to reform it, to put a better system in place. And I think even Trump is saying now, we cannot provide health insurance to everybody because the whole end goal of that will only increase the debt, will only um, lower competition. And bureaucracy, as we talked about yesterday, Trump is cutting bureaucracy, signing an executive order yesterday. It just doesn't correlate to good fiscal responsibility. So you're looking at this healthcare system and saying, listen, why am I being told to get insurance and I can only choose from one? You should be allowed to get insurance anywhere. So if you were given the free market approach, then you would go and choose the health insurance that you want. You also, in my view, should not be granted pre-existing uh, insurance based on pre-existing conditions unless it was rolled over, unless it was grandfathered in because, you know, if, say, I got sick, God forbid, I got sick, and I could just buy insurance now to cover that, so then I'm just going to drop it as soon as I'm not sick. So now people are paying for my health insurance, but I'm not paying into the system. It just doesn't work. And, um, you know, frankly, people don't want to be mandated for health insurance. So basic questions, but there's a lot of infighting going on in the Republican Party. Paul Ryan is uh, is battling his own people there. And, you know, it seems like they're, they're in disarray. And listen, the three-pronged approach is fine. I actually agree with multiple pieces of legislation here. Um, you know, uh, I thought of a, uh, well, I didn't think of it. Charles Krauthammer, uh said this on uh, Fox News this evening that uh, he came out with a great idea that I agree with or at least would consider. I wouldn't say I, I agree with it necessarily, but I figured I'd, I'd bring it up because he brings up an interesting point. You know, the reconciliation measure of the bill is intended so that Democrats don't filibuster. But then you're just ramming it down the Democrats' throat like Democrats did to us in, you know, in 2010. So Krauthammer said something very, uh, very interesting. And he said, well, how about they put more stuff in the bill that would be more conservative, okay, that would be more appealing to free market conservatives and involve the Democrats and say, listen, where can we meet any consensus here? Can we come together as a country for once? And he said, let them, I mean, dare them to filibuster. Don't do it as a reconciliation measure. Dare them to filibuster. And if they filibuster and kill it in the House, then you just throw your hands up and you say, well, we try to work with the Democrats, but clearly they're not working with us. Because right now, the Democrats actually have the upper hand in this debate because of the way that this was communicated. It was poor communication, and it's not by Trump. This is poorly communicated by Republicans who have been there for seven years who should have had a consensus bill. And, you know, the Freedom Caucus, which um, has a more uh, free market conservative approach, they've been vehemently against uh, this Ryan cares, what some people are calling it. And, you know, Paul Ryan is uh, getting getting a lot of flack from his own party. And it's going to be interesting to see how this goes 
you know, goes forward. Uh, President Trump said it's all about negotiation, that this is a starting point. We're going to negotiate it. And I trust President Trump, but I don't trust the swamp, and I don't trust the Republicans who they're worried about their reelection. And that's the thing that that worries me is that they're not concerned about putting the best health care plan out there because even because if they put the best plan out there that may hurt in the short term, that would be great in the long term, they would be kicked out of Congress. They would lose their reelections potentially unless it kicks in well right away. But then again, Trump was voted in to shake things up. So maybe they wouldn't be gone if they had some change here. But at the same point, if they you know, they feel as comfortable with going with this what's been dubbed as Obamacare light by Rand Paul. And if they do that, then maybe their constituents will keep them in. And I think they're just worried about reelection. It all comes down to that. And it all comes down to money. So, um, Interesting to see how this thing is developing. Phases two and three um, are to be expected. Nancy Pelosi, I was going to kick out of seeing what she has to say every day. Um, she puts out a tweet today, the Democrat in California, uh, the House Minority Leader, saying, um, at POTUS, President Trump uh, wants to know about your experiences with Affordable Health Care Act. Share your stories about why we must hashtag protect our care and you know, wanting to, she was looking for, and she was tagging uh, the White House uh, bill, or you know, their uh, their release on the House bill, and she wanted to get some positive feedback about Obamacare. And what did she get? She got a lot of tweets in return, and these are regular people who normally get ignored. So I am going to take the liberty in giving them a voice to say what they their experiences have been with Obamacare, because frankly, we talk about the premium rises, we talked about deductibles. And that all hurts middle-class Americans, all hurts regular Americans. You know, Bernie Sanders comes out today and says, millions of Americans are going to die. Okay, Bernie, calm down, okay? You know, go to your third house, you, you know, socialist hypocrite over there. Um, I don't take him seriously, especially the Democrats obviously don't because they're rigged it against him. Um, let me give these people a voice here. They tweeted at Nancy Pelosi, and I have a list of uh, tweets here that I'm going to read to you. Uh, at Nancy Pelosi, um, my costs have skyrocketed under Obamacare. Out of pocket, almost twice what paid pre-Ocare Obamacare, and says we need a full repeal. This is uh, uh, Robert uh, Schnabel. Probably won't read everyone's name, but uh, these are some of the uh, the people. Well, all right, here Parissa writes this: Healthcare insurance for dad and two younger siblings is eight hundred dollars per month. This is not affordable for a middle-class family. So these are regular folks dealing with this, okay? And Nancy Pelosi, costs went through the roof. Carol Lombardia wrote that. Um, again, that uh, Robert Shinobli wrote this. My costs – oh, I read this one already. This is just a du – I duplicated it, so my apologies here. His costs went skyrocketed, and obviously nothing to uh, to laugh about because that's, uh, that's the case with many people under Obamacare. Uh, someone else wrote to Nancy Pelosi, please get rid of the Affordable Health Care Act. It is financially devastating to us in the middle class. We need care for our families. And then uh, another tweet here, the last one that I'll read you. Uh, I need surgery, and I can't get it because deductible is too high. Been in pain for two years. I mean, these are regular people who are suffering. Obamacare pretty much is a watered-down socialist health care system. 
and it's causing wait times. They're no longer, and I trust these people who, who said this to Nancy Pelosi, their candid responses online saying that Obamacare didn't work for us. It may have helped, you know, people get so-called coverage, but the quality wasn't good, and it hurt the majority of the country. It's a bad bill. It was rammed down Republicans' throats. So I urge Republicans not to ram it down Democrats' throats and to actually get this done right. Find some consensus. Build something that has free market entities in there that would allow the use of technology and medicine, that would allow people to get quality health insurance at a lower cost with high competition, and that they can get their doctor. And if they don't want insurance, it is their right not to have insurance. Well, it is their right to have insurance, it is their right not to have insurance and not be taxed for it and charged and penalized for not wanting insurance. It is their right, you know, liberals say, tell on the abortion debate, well, you know, we shouldn't be telling women how to, um, to treat their, their bodies. That's their debate, even though no one's really telling them how to treat their bodies, they're more worried about the, the unborn. And... The concern for the unborn child, especially late-term abortion when they can live on their own. But so liberals are quick to say that, but when it comes to the Affordable Health Care Act, well, no, we have to tell you to use your insurance, and, and you need this. We're going to mandate that you take insurance, but at the same time, you know, when it comes to uh, rights of the unborn, well, no, we can't tell you what to do with your body, but we can tell you to have insurance. Like, what? So many confusing um ideologies uh you know frankly president trump isn't ideological um and you know while i'm conservative i'm also have mixed views on things and uh you know you don't have to be right down the traditional republican or democratic line you could have mixed views um meanwhile uh president trump's administration has told the state department to cut more than 50% of U.S. funding to the United Nations programs. Uh, foreign policy reports this. And we talked about the U.N. yesterday. You know, they're just starting to monitor the system in Aleppo. It's like that commercial when uh, the security monitor and he doesn't have a gun and can't do anything about a robbery. Well, I'm just a monitor. Yeah, that's what the U.N. is doing in Aleppo. And President Trump has talked about the U.N. and really just being an all-talk-no-action conduit. And so the White House are pushing these uh, reductions, uh, 50% cutting funds from the U.N., um, which is expected to include a 37% cut uh, to the State Department uh, and U.S. Agency for International uh, Development budgets. Um, that's going to be included in his budget, excuse me. I didn't, uh, I didn't preface that. Um, the, his budget is going to come out on Thursday, his top-line budget proposal. Uh, President Trump's, uh, that is. So um, his budget for 2018 comes out Thursday. So Thursday is really going to be a big day. We'll talk about budget. We'll talk about the, the uh, travel suspension. Um, so on this budget proposal, not only are they putting forth, the uh, Trump administration putting forth a uh, cut of United Nations programs, but uh, they're expected to also cut back on State Department and uh, other bureau, uh, bureaucracy um, elements in the government. And we talked about Trump cutting back on bureaucracy because it slows business down. And Trump is a businessman, wants to run the country like a business. Now, just to give you the U.N. numbers, the U.S. spends roughly $10 billion annually on the U.N., and the cuts can have the greatest impact uh, on peacekeeping, uh, according to the article I am reading. 
I don't think it would because, frankly, if they were interested in keeping the peace, they would have eradicated ISIS. But where are where is the UN on that? And the UN uh, Development Program and UNICEF could be cut back as a result of this um, uh, this cutback that Trump uh, could be proposing on Thursday. Again, this is just being reported by Foreign Policy. Um, that's the organization that's being reported this. So a possible major cut to the UN, and you know, frankly, the UN they meet. And you have all these nations, and they talk, and they have coffee, and they have cake. Not much really gets done, to be honest with you. All I see is all talk and no action. I don't see action in the Middle East. I don't see action when women are being beheaded. I don't see action when homosexuals are being thrown off buildings and murdered for being homosexual. I don't see them, you know, sanctioning uh, these countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran and Iraq and Qatar and Kuwait for human rights violations. I don't see it. Now, if I'm wrong, show me proof. Show me proof. Because this stuff still goes on. You still have oligarchs in these nations. But what, what does the UN want to promote? Globalism. They're all about globalism. And what's wrong with globalism is that, in reality, globalism puts, you know, the world first. We're going we're gonna to be so loving and peaceful. This is what they say, okay? But what comes out of that is actually what plays into the hands of those like Vladimir Putin and other um, bad dudes, bad hombres, as President Trump would say. Um, you know, the uh, monarchs, the king of Morocco. These are the ones that benefit. The kings of Saudi Arabia, who, by the way, uh, some uh, diplomats from Saudi Arabia, kings from Saudi Arabia met with President Trump today, which was an interesting picture. It's kind of weird picture to see. It was President Trump wearing, you know, a, his suit and red tie, um, his uh, infamous red tie, and uh, joined by uh, three uh, men in uh, in robes and traditional Arab garb. Um, kind of a weird, uh, a weird picture there in the Oval Office, and I'm curious of what happened. But obviously, we really aren't privileged to know uh, what occurred. But you know, I hope that President Trump said, "Listen, okay, um, you're worried about us." Okay, and our travel suspension, I'm worried about you killing women and telling them how to dress and how to drive. Where are the human rights sanctions from the U.N. on that? Um, you know, and then, you know, we talk about the CIA and WikiLeaks and, and the covert operations that are going on and uh, the way that our intelligence has been politicized. Well, you know, I see this story today and, you know, it's been ongoing. I've been monitoring it, but... Uh, I've been. I wanted to see kind of how this developed, and we're finding out that this um, there is a uh, a probe of um, house IT contractors. Um, I don't know if you heard about this. There's a criminal investigation into IT contractors employed by dozens of House Democrats, um, sparking broader concerns about continuing access to sensitive government emails amid new allegations of illicit activity beyond. Capitol Hill. What we're finding out is that the use of private email servers is pretty rampant among House Democrats. And listen, I'm not saying it's just Democrats because it could very well be Republicans too, and there should be no use of private email servers when it comes to government, whether it be national or local. Um, but especially national, when you're dealing with classified um, and SAP, uh, secret access program, material. That was on Hillary Clinton's server that has, we know, has been hacked by foreign entities. And she made it vulnerable. She took her BlackBerry with her. 
The investigation, by the way, was announced last month by the U.S. Capitol Police and purportedly focuses on the contractor's access to house computers and whether they took hardware and made questionable IT-related purchases. They are investigating brothers, uh, Imran, Jamal, and Abid Awan. They're the brothers. They're the focus of the probe, but as many as six people can be involved in this investigation. Official documents and multiple sources say at least five contractors are involved in this IT investigation. Uh, others that are purportedly uh, involved are Imran's wife, Hina Alvi, and uh, Rayo Abbas, who is not part of the family. Um, and this is what they allegedly did. They allegedly removed hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment from government offices, including computers and servers, and ran a procurement scheme in which they bought equipment, then overcharged House administrative offices that assigns such contractors to House members. Sources also say the contractors, including one who worked for Florida Democratic Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, remember, remember her, rigging the primary for Hillary over Bernie? Well, she's now tied up in this and that she possibly gave unauthorized access to the House computer system. How nice. So all of these people, all of these crooks, could have access to more sensitive and classified material than they already gained through the Hillary Clinton private email server. House Democrats, though, have stood by these crooks. Imagine they're being investigated. Now, if Republicans are being investigated, oh my God, um, what the talking point would be that all Republicans are crooks and all this is what the Democrats would say. But House Democrats are staying by these contractors privately and publicly suggesting that because that these contractors are Muslim and, and, and from Pakistan, that that's the reason why they are being investigated and it's just fear-mongering. Oh, really? Okay. Honestly, if any person, I don't care if you're purple, or if you're a minion, or what are those, uh, what are those things from uh, Despicable Other uh, Minions, right? Those, that's what they're called, the ones that go bee boo bee boo. They're minions, right? <laughs> I don't care if you're a minion. If you have access to government information and you hack into the IT system of our House of Representatives, you need to be locked up, questioned, and interrogated. And frankly, House Democrats that are sticking by these contractors need to be put on for an investigation. We're all quick to say we need investigations. Well, you know, when there's classified information that could be very well going back to ISIS, because this is what we're going to find out, okay, is that there we're going to find out that there was some radical thing going on here and it's being fed back to the Islamic State and they're using it against us. I'm telling you right now, well, listen, this could be a possibility. I don't want to say that it's definitely going to happen. I'm kind of being sarcastic here. So before you flip out and say, oh, Neil, it's jumping to conclusions. Before people say that, I, I realize that there are many possibilities here. But it is very clear that this could very well be tied into terrorism. Why else would people want our sense of information unless they're going to do harm against us? And House Democrats are actually fostering the ability for them to get it. And now the Debbie Washman Schultz connection, they're, they should investigate that. They don't know whether this is um, this has any uh, nexus to 
the Hillary Clinton private email server, but it's certainly fishy and, and it raises a lot of questions. Um, all right, well, coming up, the State Department is warning all those spring breakers not to go to Mexico. Why? Because there's evidence of drugs and gangs, and we're going to talk about it. Um, and also, um, jobs, we're going to just tell you those job numbers just are pretty damn good. And President Trump is not taking a salary, but that's not the narrative that is out there in the public. That's coming up on the Neil Akers Show podcast this Pi Day, Tuesday, March 14th. Rolls along. Get engaged. I mean, what are you thinking about, Jerry? Marriage? Family? Oh. They're prisons! <laughs> Man-made prisons! You're doing time! Not that type of engagement. Get engaged with the Neela Caruso Show podcast by subscribing on iTunes and following Neela Caruso on Twitter, Instagram, and his official Facebook page so you don't miss out on the important things in life. The Neela Caruso Show podcast. A ranger station. I'd like to report a bear hug. Okay. I put out my campfire and Smokey Bear hugged me. So you drowned the fire, you stirred it, drowned it again, and felt that it was cold? Uh-huh. Yeah, but he's just letting you know you did good. Bear hug from Smokey Bear. Status update. I'm gonna let you go now. There are many ways to start a fire, but one sure way to put it out. Learn how you can do your part at SmokeyBear.com. Sponsored by the U.S. Forest Service Ad Council and your state forester. Green light. Hey girl, school zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text, stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Neil Crusoe is the man. He's like a fine wine. Every day goes by, I get to appreciate his genius more and more. Stay tuned to the Neil A. Crusoe Show podcast. All right. Just like a fine wine. Uh, we roll along on this uh, March 14th. Well, uh, the U.S. State Department is warning all college students that um, spring break travel to Mexico, they're saying it's a no-no. Um, U.S. State Department warning that uh, there are there's rampant crime that has made travel dangerous for Americans. And um, Mexico, uh, once um, on the popular spring break destinations, is plagued with endemic uh, levels of violence, according to the U.S. government. This is the warning stated by the U.S. State Department. U.S. citizens have been victims of violent crimes, including homicide, kidnapping, carjacking, and robbery in various Mexican states. Um, They specifically mention uh, 14 of Mexico's 31 states, including uh, popular uh, spring break destinations, Um, Guerrero being one of them, which was the most violent state in Mexico in 2015 for the third year in a row. And self-defense groups um, actually are operating uh, independently of the government in many areas there in Guerrero, and they're, um, they actually have a whole uh, gang uh, ring down there that is very profitable. Uh, they, 
they sell drugs to the local market and they're not being cracked down on. And this is really the danger of what's going on in Mexico because they're not regulating, they're not controlling their own borders and their country and their you know, this comes in through Central America, but frankly, Mexico is complicit in a lot of this crime. And so the U.S. State Department says, don't go to Mexico. Not only don't drink the water, just don't go. And there's another story, actually, in Mexico that I saw, so I figured it was related. So what the hell, I'll tell you about it. Uh, the top prosecutor in Mexico's Gulf Coast state of Veracruz, which is one of the um, the cities, the states that um, are being banned, uh, or that the U.S. State Department is warning against for spring breakers. Well, Veracruz, um, there are... 200, they, were, they found 250 skulls that has been found in what appears to be a drug cartel mass burial ground on the outskirts of the city of Veracruz. 250 skulls. A drug cartel mass burial. Have you ever heard of such a thing? This just kind of floored me when I saw this. State prosecutor Jorge Winkler says that uh, the, the burial pits appear to contain the victims of drug cartels killed years ago. Imagine. Just, ugh, jeez. Terrible. Um, my friend Michael Cutler, retired immigration agent, uh, writes articles for Front Page Magazine, and one of the stories he wrote about this week um, was uh, Kazir Khan. Remember him? He spoke at the Democratic Convention. He had that really you know, great gimmick of holding up the um, Constitution and telling President Trump to read the Constitution and that jumped into a whole, you know, bunch of memes and all that. Well, um, Kazir Khan is back in the news because he says that his travel privileges, excuse me, his travel privileges were under review and as a consequence had to cancel his plan of speaking engagement in Canada and he's blaming President Trump. But uh, you know, in reading Michael Culler's article, looking this up a little, it's a little clouded. And, you know, Michael Cutler writes here that, you know, the media, they jump to get to be first on this story, but they just don't get it right because if they look into this, is very common and travel sometimes is curtailed and there's a lot of historical precedent to this. Um, and he writes that uh, certainly Khan's claim would have furthered the never-ending bogus claims and narratives about how President Trump's Im immigration policies are designed to single out Muslims for unfair treatment. Therein apparently lies the problem and the possible, likely, explanation. Uh, many people uh, have come to complain that we've become too politically correct, writes Mr. Cutler, to speak the truth about important issues. Um, and he writes that his view is the artful use of language has been described as examples of political correctness or, in fact, examples of Orwellian newspeak. And frankly, you know, just because your travel was curtailed has nothing to do with your religion. But they jump to conclusions about this all the time. This is what they're doing about the travel suspension. They make it as if it has anything to do with their religion when it really just has a lot to do with people who are bringing in drugs and bringing in crime to our country, which is pretty rampant. Um, and people that want to kill us, they are beheading people, ISIS. They are beheading Christians. They are beheading journalists. And they want to open our borders. And there are terrorist attacks in Europe that are going on. And everyone, the FBI, CIA, DNI, all said that ISIS is infiltrating our refugee population. And we are going to let them in anyway. Because that's what these establishment politicians want. Um, frankly, 
This reminds me of a conversation I had about the importance about defining uh, radical Islamic terrorism to make that distinction because, frankly, if you don't make that distinction, then you're hurting Muslims. And, you know, like sanctuary cities, and we've talked about that, about how it's actually hurt minorities because minorities are afraid to speak up in their communities because if they do so about a criminal illegal alien and the minority would be then granted a uh, visa and would be allowed to stay in the country um, after giving uh, this information over to the feds. And if they were to do that because of sanctuary city policy put forth by a lot of these liberal mayors, 300 jurisdictions, in fact, over 300 jurisdictions, then you are going to have um, a situation where the criminal illegal alien is reported, the criminal illegal alien is released because of sanctuary city policy, and then they end up killing the person who reported them as retaliation. It goes on. And that's and these Muslim communities are very tight. They need to make the distinction that that's not us, that they're doing in the name of our religion, but it is not us. It is a radical version of that religion. They'd be better off by doing that, and that's the whole purpose of this. Uh, President Trump has had a remarkable first month in office. You know, just to rattle some of these things off, because I think it goes unnoticed, 235,000 jobs added to our economy in February, 100,000 more than what was expected. He had a great jobs report. 40% uh, fewer illegal immigrants cross our border, even before the border wall has been constructed, because it's already been, um, you know, scaring and giving a, scaring, but, you know, giving a, uh, uh, making illegal aliens, potential legal aliens, think twice about crossing our border because there's a new sheriff in town. Um, $3 trillion added to the stock market. Optimism about our economy continuing to soar. Billions of dollars will be invested here in the U.S. by businesses are encouraged by President Trump's economic policies. We talked about all of that. Over $67.7 billion to be invested. Over 1,800,000 jobs are going to be created for American workers already since Trump has been elected. This is a very quick. We're at day 53, I believe we are, or 57, something like that. In the 50s, in terms of days. George Neil Gorsuch, a constitutionalist, uh, being put uh, as a nominee to the Supreme Court. And we're just getting started here. Now, that jobs report, 235,000 jobs added. The expectation was 190,000 jobs. Um, the unemployment rate is at 4.7%. The real unemployment rate, obviously, is much higher. President Trump is aiming to get those blue-collar workers back to work, and he's already promised that. And it seems like businesses are going to follow through as a result of his pro-growth, pro-business policies. And um, construction jobs, 58,000 construction jobs created in the month of February. 28,000 manufacturing jobs. Manufacturing, by the way, was decimated under the Obama administration. Over 27,000 healthcare jobs. And 8,000 mining jobs. Big league. Big league jobs created. And the mining, you know, that was a big, uh, he was protecting coal workers who have seen their jobs being um, overregulated by the EPA. And frankly, a lot of them lost their jobs. Um, so some great numbers there. And obviously the markets have skyrocketed, as we said. And then, you know, I'll just leave you with this. Because President Trump, we're lucky to have him. I, I've been saying that. I think... All, the last couple of podcasts have actually ended the show saying that because, you know, what is he said? I'm not taking a salary. Now, the Constitution actually mandates that President Trump takes a salary. Um, I didn't even know this. Um, 
And I had the copy of the Constitution. I went back and I read it. And I'll tell you what it says. Article 2, Section 1. Quote, the president shall at stated times receive for his services a compensation for which shall neither be increased nor diminished during the period for which he shall have been elected. And he shall not receive within that period any other emolument from the United States or any of them. And that's what the U.S. Constitution reads. So what President Trump's planning to do is taking his $400,000 salary that he is supposed to be given and he's going to donate it to charity. But the media has attacked him on this. They don't take it for face value. They not only question it, but they say that Spicer offered no indication that Trump was foregoing payments, despite Trump's disinterest in receiving compensation, which spans back at least 18 months. Um, Spicer offered no indication. Spicer was, if you listen to the audio clip, and I should have pulled it, frankly, um, Sean Spicer clearly said on Monday that President Trump is donating donating his salary to charity, and then he turned it around. I guess it was an ABC News reporter. He turned it around and said, um, "Are you? Uh, are, do you have any charities you suggest?" He's going to donate to charity. He, does a billionaire need four hundred thousand dollars? I mean, give me a break. Um, and then you know that same article that um, criticizes um, uh, Spicer and and Trump's plan to donate, and he's not the only one that's foregoing a salary. There are other people in this administration, like Wilbur Ross, his Commerce Secretary, that don't need the money. And then, pathetically, this article at the bottom actually states that the president is mandated to take a salary. He's forced to take a salary, but he's not going to. He's going to take it, and he's going to donate it. And, you know, thanks to President Obama, um, because he gave himself a, a nice uh, raise in his pension, uh, President Trump's going to have a nice pension. Uh, not that he needs it. He's a billionaire. He's going to donate this money. And he said that he may donate it straight to the Treasury Department to deal with our $20 trillion debt that we are immersed in. Um, all right, so that does it for this March 14th episode of the Neil A. Caruso Show podcast. We will be back tomorrow, and we will continue through the week. Uh, healthcare, this travel suspension that is pending. There's supposed to be a court case tomorrow. So as we go to the podcast, tomorrow we may have some information what happened uh, in a lower court. Oh, and by the way, there's an alert before we went to record the podcast that MSNBC's Rachel Maddow apparently got her fingers on Trump's 2005 tax returns. I mean, do we really care about his 2005 tax returns? I and mean, give me a break. He released all his financial statements. We know everything in terms of his businesses. We know how much he's worth. The tax returns don't show you much. They really don't. Who cares at this point? It's our president. Can you just grow up? Oh, jeez. Anyway, God bless you. God bless America. Talk to you tomorrow. The Neil A. Crusoe Show podcast is a production of Crusoe Enterprises. Engaging, informing, and entertaining. Passion-driven, factual content that makes a difference following Neil A. Crusoe on social media. And log on to neilacrusoe.com to sign up for Crusoe's comments, newsletters, and be the first to know.